Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is a very popular story uh, that Jesus told. But the question for us is, what does it mean? What is it about? When we read the story, what are we supposed to see? Or when we hear the story, what are we supposed to listen for? What is the story about is the question before us today. And I think another important question is simply, why did Jesus even tell this story? Well, you may have picked up on that in the very first couple of verses that Hannah read. Let me just read those again for you. Uh, in In chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the setting uh, for the story. And the setting is religious and social dissonance. 
when it comes to Jesus. Now, a couple of things about these tax collectors and the other category of sinners. They get their own category. Uh, tax collectors, as you may or may not know at this time, were not a well-liked people. Mostly because they took your money, but they also had the ability to make themselves quite well off and sometimes extremely wealthy, usually at the expense of the poor. There's no middle class at this time, and so you have people scraping money off the top of what they could do to become wealthy. Not every tax collector did this, but they definitely had the freedom to do so. And so the tax collector uh, was already a hated group of people. Now, add to this, if they were Jewish, we have a whole nother problem here among the Jewish faithful people. It's kind of like religious and social treason is what's happening. Not only are you taking money from the poor, but you're doing it for this Roman thing that lives over us and around us. And because of that, tax collectors, this sounds strange to hear, but hear me out, tax collectors... Uh, we're kind of a marginalized group of people. And we find Jesus with people in the margins all throughout the Gospels, with the poor, with the sick, with those in great need, with children. Everyone who lives on the edge of the world, we find Jesus with. But we also find him on the other margins with these types of people as well. And Jesus has a thing for people in the margins no matter what the situation and no matter the reason. And so... The setting here is you have these Pharisees and scribes simply raising a question. Not, they're not asking a question, but they're raising the question, why is Jesus with these people who do such harm to those of us in the world? They're upset at Jesus' ease with such people. He's very, it's very easy for him. Now, it seems silly to us to think about this, like, why do they care who Jesus hangs out with? It seems silly to us, but like, can I remind us that we do the same thing? You get followed on your social meds, and you look and see who the mutual friends are, and then you start digging through who they follow, and you're like, well, I didn't know they followed that person, that politician, that public figure, and you question in your mind, should I follow them back? Right? Maybe you do that. Maybe you don't. It's very quiet in here, so I can tell that you probably do that. Uh, So we do it too, right? When I was having a blood transfusion after surgery last year, they sent me into the infusion lab. And uh, the infusion lab is an interesting place. But every little pod that you could sit in had like a TV in it, right? And there was a remote. And you could just watch TV because you might be there a couple hours or more. And you could watch anything you wanted with the exception of one thing. And it was on the sign. No one can watch the news, No one. And you know why, right? Because the last thing these overworked, underpaid nurses in this little room have to deal with is what you think about someone else who's watching some damn news channel that you disagree with. It gets really tense in there. And so I love the fact that taped to the TV is watch what you want, but don't turn on the news because we don't have time for that. But we do that. I made the joke in a sermon uh, semi recently, like we went to the varsity because I just had to, and like they have the rooms that you can sit in with the different TVs, and one's a CNN room and one's a Fox room, and like I just had to look at both and go, yeah, this really tracks <laughs> these people, you know. 
I'm not saying anything about either group, but like we do this, don't we? We look at people and see who they're with and say, that's not right. They shouldn't be with that person or associate with that person, shouldn't follow that person, shouldn't watch that person, shouldn't read that person. So it seems silly, but we have not evolved out of this behavior. We just have new ways of doing it. And so the setting of this story that Jesus tells is dissonance. It's muscle confusion. People are troubled by who he is hanging out with. And the issue at hand is mercy. And to help people understand this, Jesus tells not one story, but three consecutive stories back to back. And they're all the same. Something gets lost, the lost thing gets found, and then there's a party. The first two stories are, I would say, are a setup. They're so easy. Jesus is brilliant here. The first two stories that he tells is someone loses a sheep, a shepherd loses a sheep, and then the second story is uh, a woman loses a coin. And it's a setup. Because we're listening to these stories. The sheep and the coin get lost, And they find the sheep and the coin, and there's a party to celebrate. And what we do is we hear that story and we say, yes, this is the picture of God's mercy. Because the thing that got lost got found, and then there's a celebration when it's returned. It all makes sense. It's so simple. And the reason it's simple is this. The stories are personal. You might own sheep. You might have money. They're personal, but they're not interpersonal. The sheep isn't going to confess his sins. He can't. The coin isn't going to confess his sins because he can't. Just rolled off the table. Maybe if you clean the house once in a while, you could find your money. (laughs) Right? It's personal. We've all lost money. It's personal. We've all lost a thing like a sheep or a dog or something else. But it's not interpersonal. And so Jesus tells these first two stories and people are like, yes, all the pieces fit together. It's like that game Perfection. Remember that game? Anybody? Remember this game? All the pieces go in their place, in their rightful place. So these first two stories, I would also liken to uh, the culture of coziness that we are so fascinated with. You know, these first two stories are the equivalent of like the nice wooden shelf against the exposed brick wall, a stack of books, a candle and a succulent. (laughs) And somehow we like that photo because we look at it and we go, everything is in its place. And so these listeners hear the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and they agree, yes, that is what mercy looks like. But Jesus has them right where he wants them. We understand mercy in these inanimate situations, these impersonal stories, because we're at a distance and it's simpler. But then Jesus begins the third story saying there was a man who had two what? Sons. Uh Uh-oh. We now have a family dynamic. You can also substitute just people in your life. Now it gets complicated we move away from like the polish and shine 
simplistic stories of the lost sheep and the coin, and we are dragged unwittingly into a more real and complex setting, which is family. And if there's ever a community on earth that is a collection of paradoxes and inconsistencies and complications, it's the family. Amen? Because, and we had, we've all had to learn how to deal with that, otherwise there'd be no families. These first two stories uh, of the sheep and the coin, we don't really think about something like unfairness. There's nothing unfair. The sheep wandered off. It's what they do. They're not smart. The coin rolled off the table because you got a crooked table. Like, it has nothing to do with fairness. But unfairness is at the foundation of this prodigal son story. If you read it well, what you notice is that nothing is to scale. It's a complete disaster. It's a cluster. The first two are tidy, and then we get pulled into this like, wait, everything is coming unglued. Everything is off, and everyone, everyone in the story is scrambling. Junior, we'll call him Junior, and I'm just going to like describe these people for you. Junior is this entitled twit. He's grifty. He comes to his dad, give me the money, I'm out. And he leaves. And the thing about Junior is, if you follow the whole story, he keeps winning despite his losses. You know anybody like this? Probably had a brother or a sibling like this. Like, doesn't matter what they do, they just get away with it. So this junior kid is a problem. And at no point in the story does he really sound 100% repentant. He's got a script, just like we had a script coming home late from whatever thing we were at growing up. I'll tell my mom this and this and this, and maybe they'll let me off. And notice what he says, like, oh, Father, I have sinned against you and against God in heaven. Just make me one of your hired hands. Come on. His brother, we'll call him big brother, is resentful. And rightly so. Because he is also quite injured by his father's unfair response. And can we talk about the father? He's a world of inconsistencies. He has no discipline throughout the entire story. There's no punishment given. He's always doing damage control. And he's trying to keep everyone together. The brothers the son that ran away, his own relationship with his children. He's just trying to keep it together. Any parents in the room understand this? Of course you do. It's no sheep or coin story. This one's a mess. And if we read it right, we kind of feel bad for everybody. We feel bad for everybody. Everyone is lost in their own way. Junior is lost in a world of his own, in his self. Big brother is lost seemingly in his own morality. He's good at being good. You know, and every family has that person. 
the scorekeeper. And the father seems to be lost in his unreasonable love for both children. And so when Jesus tells this story, just as a recap, people are confused and frustrated by Jesus' associations. So he tells two stories at the beginning about the mercy of God, and they're very cozy, and we get it. And then you know what happens in the game of perfection, right? This happens. So he tells this story, and the pieces go everywhere. It's confusing. And I think he does this for one reason. In the real world, mercy is a mess. Amen? It, it's not tidy. It's not even cozy. It is a mess. When mercy is needed, it will cause disruption. Every time. When mercy is needed, there's a disruption. When mercy is given, it always creates tension. Because someone has an opinion as to whether they deserve it. It creates no mercy is gone unchecked. There's tension in the room. And when mercy is received, it will always be unbalanced and unfair. And so Jesus was pulling his listeners away from the theoretical, the on paper version of how we understand God to be. And he pulls them into the very real mess of how mercy works in actual relationships. And it's always unfair. We understand God's mercy most when we need it. But it doesn't make much sense to us when someone else who needs it gets it and we don't feel they deserve it. Right? Makes most sense when I need it. It's confusing when someone else needs it. And I would say that the us and them binary lens through which we see all people these days makes something like mercy a troubling idea. Especially if we lose touch with the way, uh, the very real truth that people, all of us, are all inconsistent, we're all scrambling. And we're all often lost. So mercy is a difficult thing for us. Uh, there's a hymn that I love. It's called, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. Now, a little background before I show you this verse. Uh, there are five verses to the original hymn. But in pretty much every hymnal, verse three has been taken out. It's been redacted. And there's a reason, and I think you can pick up why. Notice what verse 3 says. But we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own, and we magnify its strictness with a zeal God will not own. It's interesting that we redact the very thing that we need. Amen? That we just look at that and go, I can't stomach that. So I'm definitely not going to sing it. Lent, it brings us very close to the unfairness of God's mercy. Because during this season, we 
are supposed to be looking more intently at Jesus, more intently at ourselves, and very specifically at our own inconsistent, scrambling, lost lives. And in a moment of grace, it brings us to the very mercy, the unfair mercy of God. I want to close with, uh, you just, I don't have it on a slide, but just listen. Uh, The epistle reading for today is beautiful. And it's Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'll close with this, and then we'll do some prayer. Paul writes, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. Verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The emphasis is on there. There is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has come, become new. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see the handoff? This is what God has done for me. I will go and work this out in the real world. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Amen, thank you. And entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ Such a lofty term, but you know what that means. That we represent, that we speak on behalf of. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Thank you.